Well, tonight we're going to be in the book of Second Peter, so you want to go ahead and turn there to chapter 3. One thing I've noticed about the Christmas season is that Americans love stuff. Can, you, can I get an amen to that? Maybe a hallelujah. We love stuff, and we love lots of stuff, and especially if it comes wrapped and it's made of plastic. I have never received so much plastic in my life as when we begin to have kids. We have four kids, grandparents around the country, and I think what they do is they should just have a big sign on the local store that everybody shops in that says, bargain plastic for sale, because we love it. Some of you love your cars. I mean, we know by how many you have on your front lawn. But that's, (laughs) Americans love stuff, don't they? Now, what if I told you, gave you, I came to you and I said, you know, I'm the most wealthy, most influential man in the world. And I want to do something great for you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to build you a warehouse. And in that warehouse, you can stock everything that you ever wanted. I mean, everything. And you being Christians, you're only going to ask for the good stuff, right? You're not going to ask for any of the weird stuff, nothing bad, nothing immoral. Just all the good things in life that are blessings from the Lord. You'd put maybe a house in there, a boat, or whatever it may be, a, a new toupee, or what, whatever your wishes and wants would be. But I tell you for one second that there's a caveat. There's a catch here. And here it is. We're going to give you everything you want, free of charge. We'll keep it for you in this one place. Here's the catch, though. We're going to burn it to the ground. And you can pick it up after it's been burned. Now, I see the look on your face has kind of dropped a little bit. Like, well, that's not very much fun. How many of you would actually drive by to pick up the burned remains of all of your wants and wishes? Well, let's put it in another way. Let's say that someone came to you who's a builder and they said, I will make you the best house that you could ever imagine, bar no expense. Everything you ever wanted in every room, three TVs in every room. You can watch all different channels at the same time. But here's the catch. You will have to stay in that house alone for the remainder of your life. You won't be able to call anyone and you won't be able to visit anyone. Now, none of those sounds like the lottery, does it? It doesn't sound like winning anything. But the truth is that we live our lives in such a way, believers, that we forget that all of this stuff, all of these things, all of our hopes and aspirations that are found in this plane only, a plane that can be flooded, a plane that can be burned, even the elements burned, we find that our values shift and change very quickly. Our main text tonight is 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to look with me at our key verse, which is found in verse 11. It says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let's read the whole chapter. Verse 1. Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, 
both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which that world then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth And the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we have approached this moment. We live by time and space. We live by the clock. But, Lord, you are the Lord of all time. And outside of our time. But Lord, we do not want to waste one moment of your time. For we know that we are your resources. We belong to you. And this is your word. So therefore, Lord, we would ask that tonight, during this brief time together, you would show us things that would not only challenge us, Lord, but would strike us to the very core of our being. Ready, Lord, for that good and implanted word. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be fertile soil to just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight is a Bible study. Oh, yeah, one more thing I forgot. I'm going to drink a lot of water. Is that okay? Now, tonight is a Bible study. And what I mean by that is you're going to have to pay close attention Those of you who have pins and you're going to take notes, good job. Because afterwards you'll go, wait a minute, hey, hey, buddy, can I get that uh, note from you? Because we're going to cover a lot of scripture. So consider it a mental exercise, put your heart into it, and we'll have fun for the next few minutes. There was a guy by the name of R.A. Torrey, one of my favorite scholars back in the 1800s. He was the first dean of the Moody Bible Institute. He was pastor for a number of years at the Memorial uh, Moody Memorial Church from 1902 to 1906. He was the dean of Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he was known for writing over 40 books, and he poured himself into the scripture like no other man of his day. Well, a certain gentleman by the name of Dr. Congdon approached him one day, And he explained that he got nothing out of Bible study. And this is what he said. He said, the scriptures seem to be dry as dust. Please tell me how to study it in a way that it will mean something to me. Dr. Torrey replied, read it. I do read it. 
Read it some more. Well, how? Take some book and read it 12 times a day for a month. What book could I read that many times a day? Because I work so many hours. Help me out here, Mr. Tory. And he says this. Try Second Peter, replied Tory. The man said later, my wife and I read Second Peter three or four times in the morning, two or three times at noon, and two or three times at dinner. Soon I was talking Second Peter. To everyone I met, it seemed as though the stars in the heaven were singing the story of Second Peter. I read Second Peter on my knees, marking up the passages. Teardrops mingled with crayon colors, and I said to my wife, Oh, see how I have ruined this part of my Bible. And I love her words. Yes, she said, but as the pages have been getting black, your life has been getting white. And so as we study this passage of Scripture tonight, I hope that as we pour through this and we go through here, though the pages of Scripture may get smudged, I pray that our lives would be enlightened and the load would be lightened and we would begin to change and be transformed by His Word. Now, just by way of a little bit of background, I want to tell you about this letter. It's the second epistle of Peter, and it was probably written in Rome around the time of Nero's reign, right toward the end, somewhere between 66 and 67 A.D. And it was written to the Christians in Asia Minor, and it was just a short time before Peter's death. And like Paul, he has this urgency to write to them about false prophets. In fact, the second chapter of this book, all you see is this very detailed description of these nasty fellows known as the false prophets. Well, by the time we come in to chapter 3, we see some very poignant parting words that he would leave to the church. And he asked this question, what manner of people are we to be? And in verse 11, we see that we're to be a people who live by holy conduct and a godly attitude. The Greek word here for holy is hagios, and it basically means set apart for service to God. It is a holy life that is separated. Holy conduct speaks about your actions, the way that you live. Godliness, on the other hand, in verse 11, speaks about your attitude. It's an attitude of piety toward God. It's not only doing the right things, but godliness reflects being the right things and living the right things and having the right thoughts in your mind. This chapter defines for us what is meant by holiness and godliness. Now, when you hear those words, do you kind of get freaked out? Whenever I hear the word holiness, I think, must not be talking about me. You know, who are they talking about? Because I know myself. But if we take in this very simple form, all it means is that you are holy and separated. You've set apart your life to do God's will, to think God's thoughts, and to be his person. <clears throat> well, let's look back at the beginning of the book and we'll follow it all the way down. Chapter 3, verse 1. A holy people, first of all, are a people that remember. Look what he says. He says, Beloved, now I write to you the second time, second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. The first, right off the bat, he uses a word that I think we need to hang on to. It's called beloved, or back where I'm from, we'd say beloved. 
maybe some of you from Texas or Longhorn fans or whatever it may be, uh, you would say beloved. But in Greek, it's agape toy. And I love the way that Kenneth Weiss translates this word. He translates it divinely loved ones. The NIV says dear friends. But people, who we are really in Christ is more about our relationship with God. I love the way that the Apostle John described himself. He described himself as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Now, some might say that he's bragging, but really that's the story of every one of us. What's the greatest thing about you and the greatest thing about me? The greatest thing about us is the fact that God loves us. And this term, agape toy, is used four different times in this passage. He's no longer speaking about the false prophets, but now he's personally addressing the beloved ones. And I love that. Let's look around the room. Look, everywhere you see divinely loved ones. (laughs) You thought you were in bad company, but actually it's a pretty good group of people. Notice the second little phrase here. The second little phrase here is stir up. Diagairo is the Greek term, and it means I arouse, or I urge your mind, or I wake up. He's urging them, he says, now wake up, I have called you and I've tried to wake up your mind. I am stirring and and engaging your intellect in such a way that I don't want you to fall asleep. And then he also uses another cool phrase here, and that is, he uses the term for a pure mind. And in Greek, this is what it means. Unmixed, unsoiled, sincere, free from falsehoods. So he knows that the brethren, the divinely loved ones, are the kind of people that when he stirs up something in their head, he's not stirring up trash. He's stirring up things that they already know. Now, you might ask the question, as a believer, why do we need to be reminded? Or why do we need to be awakened or anyone to wake us up? First of all, I think it's very simple. First of all, we need to be awakened because we are quick to forget. I'm very quick to forget. I have the sometimers disease. I remember sometimes and sometimes I don't. But I forget even good truth. And then also, Christianity, I believe, has its own culture of ease. It is what I would call the blessed life. Now, this is not bad. The blessed life is the result of following God. Many of you came out of the world in a very messed up lifestyle and relationship, right? You said, man, I didn't have a blessed life. In fact, my life, the way that it was going, was more like a cursed life. But... You come to Christ, He cleanses you, you begin to leave your sins behind, and all of a sudden, things start working out better. You're going to church, you're worshiping the Lord, you have good friends that pray for you, and all of a sudden, you have this life of ease. This life of ease is a blessing from the Lord, but there's a problem. The life of ease doesn't necessarily prepare you for war. It's easy to fall asleep. You know, some of the best lectures that I've ever been to were always after lunch. You ever been to those? Right after the biggest meal of the day, and like an idiot, you sit in the front row, 
and uh, your favorite teacher that you just love and you don't want to ever let them think that you're um, a goof. And all of a sudden they start to speak and it's really great and you start taking notes and, and you start the whole process of, of fighting back and forth and you pinch yourself and you go on. That's the idea. Don't fall asleep here. I want to wake you up. I want to stir up your minds because there's something that I want you to remember. And what are we to remember? Here's the answer. The answer is the word of God. Look at verse 2. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. We live in a world that is unsure of what is true and what is right. Would you say amen to that? It's up for debate. Everything is up for debate. However, in this world that is full of false prophets and a world that is unsure of what is right and wrong, he points us and reminds us of the word of God. First of all, we notice is that the word of God is authoritative. If you want to look with me to Second Peter chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 16 through 21. I'm going to go pretty fast here, so you might want to write these down because you may not have time to turn to every one of them. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from him from this excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice. It came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do will, you do well to take heed as the light shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is authoritative. Unlike anything in the world, you have one philosopher fighting the other philosopher. You have one television commentator fighting the other person. It's opinion against opinion. But when the word of God comes, we find out that it wasn't by the will of man. This book did not appear on this planet by the will of any human being. It appeared here by the sovereign will and control of God. And we as believers have this beautiful opportunity to be reminded and to be stirred up about the treasure that we possess in this earth. And that is the authority, the authoritative last word from the creator of the universe. That brings comfort. That brings peace. Second, we notice that the word of God is powerful. It's also good to note that we live in a world that is powerless against sin and evil. Look at all of our technology. Look at all that we have in this world. Have we been able to stop the wars that are present today? Do we live in a utopian society in which everyone gets along, man and beast together, singing Kumbaya? No, man, we got war everywhere. We have people attacking. It's a very treacherous time. But the word of God is powerful. The word of God has the ability to change. 
our lives and the lives of people in the world. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, looking at verse 12. He says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nothing is hidden from God and nothing is withheld from his hand and his power. And then we notice that the word of God is practical. We live in a world that is full of worthless philosophies. I can remember a young man. I grew up in church. I was saved like 10 times by the time I was 15. We had a small church and the pastor would say, if there's anyone out there, and there was, I was always out there. <laughs> and I'd always done something bad. And we only had a church of like 70 people and everybody there had gotten saved so many times. I kind of felt bad for the pastor because he gave an altar call. So I would go down there again. I had been saved quite a few times. But by the time I got into high school and out of high school, I began to question my faith in life. I wonder if this is true. had a few keen biology teachers. But I began, I lived, moved up to the mountains, and I began to read Plato and Aristotle. And after about three or four weeks, I said, is this the best that you've got? Because if it is, everything that I was ever taught in Sunday school absolutely outweighs this and blows it away. It was worthless philosophy. It had nothing. Nothing in comparison to the word of God. I love what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, the Greek word is theonoustos, which means God breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God here is the key. And I I want to lean heavily upon that because I want us to be reminded of these things as we disperse from this place tonight. Reminded of the power of God. Reminded of its authority and the practical nature of his word. Any of you ever lose your keys? Your mind has to be stirred up Sometimes to remember where those keys are. The word of God is like the keys. How many of you came in a car tonight? Everybody. So the few on a bicycle. It's very important. And you and I are not going to get around in this world very far without the word of God and its power. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 through 13. A holy people are not only a people that remember, but a holy people are ready. They are a ready people. First of all, we notice that a holy people are ready for opposition. Look at verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. Opposition is just a part of the Christian life. It's the way it goes. I love the story of a lady who was just probably the sweetest person that ever lived. But she 
was an irritation to her friend who loved to gossip. And she would never engage in gossip with her. And so one night, her friend got so fed up and she said, you know, you're such a Pollyanna, you're such a, a, a very positive attitude person, I bet you don't even have a bad thing to say about the devil. So the lady thought for a minute and she says, well, you got to give him credit. He sure works hard at what he does. I love what Charles Spurgeon said when a man came to him and said, I have intellectual reservations about a belief in a literal devil. And Charles Spurgeon said, you get in the ring with him and you fight with him for a few rounds and then tell me if you don't believe in him. It's just like saying there's a person in the world who says, oh, I don't believe in Mike Tyson. But take a few punches in the face and you might believe in him. He's very real because he opposes us and he opposes the faith of the believers. I love what it says in Jude verses 3. He said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Opposition. Scoffers come. That's just a part of it. Now, There's a little phrase here that we need to look at before we move on any further. And that in this first, this third verse, the phrase that we need to notice here is the last days. The last days is a very technical term, uh, eschatological term, that speaks about the entire period of time from the arrival of the Messiah to his return bodily, physically to the earth. So right now, Would you say that we are living in the last days? We have the first advent, his coming to the world, but we have yet to see his physical bodily return. It speaks of his his return in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, or actually beginning with verse 16. He said, this was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Galatians 4 verse 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that they might receive the adoption as sons. Second Timothy chapter 3, he says in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal despisers of God, having the form of godliness but denying its power. From such people turn away. And in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 He says, God, who at various times in various ways has spoken in times past to the fathers by the prophets in these last days, has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. We are living in a last time. And one thing you need to note about these last days is that you and I cannot separate the scoffer from this period. It seems to be, based upon Scripture, the time when the scoffers have a new advent and they're abound, they're in the world, and they do not love our message. In fact, they mock 
against it. In fact, I want to look at four things about these scoffers. First of all, let's look at their manner. Their manner, literally in the Greek, it states that they come mocking mockers. They begin mocking. The mockers come with their mocking. That's who they are. They're mockers, and when they approach and we see them, they're already mocking. They are filled completely to the brim with this activity. It's their manner. They mock and scoff at everything. Literally, the word here that is used means to play with or trifle with or to mock. To bounce around. I remember being in a store many years ago in Taos, and um, I was with a friend And there was a certain salesperson who uh, knew that my friend was a Christian but didn't know anything about me. And said, oh, it's Mr. Christian. Good to see you again. Glad you're here. Um, Why don't you ever bring any pastors with you? Because I like batting those guys around. I mean, none of these guys can stand up to my arguments. And I was sitting there and I thought, excuse me? Um, Hello? I'm here. I can be batted around. But she was very very mocking in her tone about Christianity and our beliefs. She loved to toy with believers. Then we notice their motive. Look at the second part of verse 3. It says, They come scoffing, walking according to their own lusts. Their motive and desire, my friend, and do not be dismayed by it, Their motive and desire has nothing to do with higher intellectual pursuits. It has to do with their own personal desires, not wanting anyone to come against them, not anyone to ever contradict them, and they want to have it their way, be it Burger King or wherever else they want to go, it's according to their own personal desires. I love the way that Kenneth Weiss translates this. He says, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days mockers with mockery, ordering their manner of life according to their own personal desires. Let's notice their message. Look in verse 4. Here's their message. Where is the promise of His coming? In verse 4. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They hold the doctrine of uniformitarianism. Let's all say that together real quick. Uniformitarianism. (laughs) Not very fun, is it? Anyway, the idea of this doctrine is that everything remains the same. Nothing's going to change. So you say that you have this bloody Savior that hung on a cross. He's not coming back. Everything has remained the same. But in this, we notice not only their motive, not only their message, but we notice in verse 5, their big mistake. Verse 5, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. The phrase that is used here in the original language for their ignorance is a very willful, 
prideful neglect and rejection of the truth. I love what Robertson says. He says, for this escapes them being willing. Vincent translates it this way. It escapes them of their own will. And another commentator says that, i.e., they speak thus because, namely for the fact that follows them, it escapes them, passes them without notice, because they have literally shut their intellectual eyes to this truth. What does the scripture say in Psalms? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Literally, he says, no God for me. The fool has said that. Not the wise man. The wise man follows after God. They willfully reject this truth. But notice this also. They willfully reject the word of God and the power of God. For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And in verse 7, it says, The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved, literally kept and preserved by that same word, that word of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. A couple little things we should note here. You see that there is, first of all, in the beginning of creation, water. Water is is a unique symbol. Water represents life. None of us here will live very long without water, and especially me tonight. But it also represents cleansing. It's connected with the idea of baptism. But then there is this other element that comes in, and that is the element of fire. And fire represents power. It also represents judgment. But with the advent of Jesus... And the Holy Spirit, he talks about being a baptism with fire and of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of an even deeper, greater cleansing. I water my lawn, but if I want it to grow back good, you have to go out there and what do you do? You burn it. He says, it is reserved for fire under water, but then the judgment that's coming is an even greater cleansing, even greater judgment reserved for fire, for judgment of ungodly men. If you want to just jot this down, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but I would encourage you tonight to look up Romans chapter 1 and read verses 18 through 32, and we see what goes on in the mind and in the will of the scoffer. Beloved, I just have one question for you. Why would we fear or be intimidated by the wisdom of of a scoffer. And yet we do so easily, don't we? Oftentimes we honor their rejection and respect their arguments. But my friends, based upon this passage, they are living in willful disobedience and therefore their wisdom, though it may be high and lofty, is nothing above zero in comparison to the truth that is found in the Word of God. All right. A ready people are not only ready for opposition, but they're ready for his return. Look with me at verse 8. He says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing. The literal phrase here that's spoken of is written in the imperative. And when he says, Do not forget this one thing, he's saying, Beloved, or divinely loved ones, 
do not let this escape your notice. It's as if he's yelling it at us or getting it to, to the point. Whatever you do, don't let this escape your notice. This is very important. He's no longer talking about the mockers, but he's speaking to us. He says, pay attention to this. He says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The thing that we're to note here is that God is not bound by our time schedule. God is not bound by the idea or the time schedule of a group of scoffers. God, as it is, lives outside of time. He is apart, he comes into his creation, but he is outside of this world that we live in. In Psalm 90, verse 4, he says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, and like a night watch of the evening. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as it says in verse 9, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. They would mock and they would say, where is the promise of his coming? And where is your God? And why hasn't he been back for 2,000 years? This escapes their notice. But it should not escape ours. That the patience of God is what is in view here. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Therefore, He's not slack about his promise. But every moment of every day that his hand holds back judgment and he doesn't come to the earth and he doesn't judge the earth, every moment that that takes place, there is another chance, another opportunity, another moment for a person to hear the gospel and to be born again and to escape eternal damnation. It praise God, praise, thank you, Lord. You're not slow, but Lord, thank you for giving us all of these years, all of this time. It is your patience, it is your goodness that is in view. All right. In the middle of this, I need to bring up, there is a doctrine that is found in the beginning of the early church. And it is found throughout the pages of Scripture and even in the life of this church today. And it is known as the doctrine of eminence. That is, the early church had a belief, and so do we, that the Lord Jesus could return for his church at any time. Now, this is not speaking of his physical return to the earth at the second coming. But it is the return that we know of as the rapture. How many of you have heard of that term? It's harpazo, or being caught up in the air. Many of you know the passage of Scripture very well. As it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, he says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we that are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, this particular doctrine of the rapture 
speaks about a time when the Lord comes, but he doesn't land on the earth. That's a very specific uh, term here. But he comes to the earth in the air and calls his own to himself to be caught up. He doesn't come in judgment. He comes for reward and acceptance of his people to take them home. Notice what it says in John 14, beginning in verse 1. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. The believer based upon this doctrine of imminence, is ready for the return of Jesus, for the church, for us, at any time. There's no prophecy or anything that would impede His coming for the church at any time, calling us in the air and us being caught up to Him. But then there's even a more personal note. The believer is not only ready for the rapture, but the believer is ready for his own personal death. I heard a story of a kid who had heard a story of the rapture. Kind of excited him. He knew he'd done a lot of things, so bad things wrong. He'd given his life to the Lord. But this doctrine of the rapture was a little bit scary. And so that later on in the night, he began to pray to the Lord. And this is what he said. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go see you right now. But if it's okay, would you take my brother first? Right. All right. Not only are we ready for opposition, not only are we ready for his return, but we're also ready for judgment. Look at verse 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away, and the noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and its works that are in it. This day of the Lord is a technical term that speaks about the time that Jesus will return to the earth just after what is known the time of Jacob's trouble or what is known as the tribulation. He comes to the earth with the armies of heaven and fights against the armies of the earth and exacts judgment and wrath about all of those who are in disobedience against God on the earth. But God has not appointed his children unto wrath. But this day, this day of the Lord that is spoken of here, is a specific time in which Jesus himself will return and he will exact judgment upon this earth. And then we see there is one more day, and we see this in verse 12 and 13. And that is, we're not only ready for his return, not only ready for his judgment, but we're ready for his reign. Look at me at verse 12. He says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You have the day of Christ. The rapture. He comes with his rewards. You have the day of the Lord. He comes in judgment. 
But then you have what we would call the eternal state. And you can read about this tonight in Revelation chapter 21. If you're really bummed out and you need hope, read Revelation chapter 21. He talks about the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. Our desire is to see God's kingdom here on earth just like it is in heaven. Now let's bring this all down to a challenge that I want to give you. I told you this was going to be a Bible study. And it was. But I want to challenge you this year and I want to speak to you from my heart and just give you a challenge as a brother, as a fellow soldier, as someone who reads this word. I want to ask you at the beginning of this year to give one year of your life to Jesus Christ. It's easy to say, oh, I give my whole life. But then you have to be stirred up and reminded what kind of people you are. Holy. Godly. I want to encourage you to give one year completely and totally to Jesus for him to do everything that he wants to do. And this is especially for you, you young people. Giving one year of your life to say, Lord, all that I have, all that I am, all my wishes, all my desires belong to you. And I will do what you have called me to do by your grace and by your power and by your ability. I want to do it. I want to live it. That's my challenge to you. And the second is to live as if you're ready now. Live as if you're ready now. I've been to quite a few funerals this year, two of which really stand out in my mind of people who are strong, godly believers, who when you find about the final hours of their life, man, were they ready. Their house was in order. Their thoughts and their minds were fixed upon them. And who knows, by illness, by accident, or by a trumpet, We have our hand to the plow and we look and all of a sudden we see it's him. Will you be so attached to the things that will burn so quickly that you're willing to look back? Or will you leave it in a second and say, ah, finally, you're here. I'm going home. Live as a ready people. I want to close with a quote i read you a song from Bob Dylan. And I won't read it like Bob Dylan, so you can be thankful about that. It was written in 1980, but its words strike me at the heart, and I'll read it to you. He says, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you where you ought to be? Will you know, will he know you when he sees you or will he say, depart from me? Are you ready? I hope you're ready. Am I ready? Am I ready? Am I ready to lay down my life for the brethren, to take up my cross? Have I surrendered to the will of God or am I still acting like the boss? Am I ready? I hope I'm ready. When destruction cometh swiftly and there's no time to say fare thee well, have you decided whether you want to be in heaven or in hell? Are you ready? Are you ready? 
Have you got some unfinished business? Is there something holding you back? Are you thinking for yourself or are you following the pack? Are you ready? I hope you're ready. Are you ready for the judgment? Are you ready for that terrible swift sword? Are you ready for Armageddon? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? Are you ready? I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great goodness. It goes with us day by day. And Lord, we want to be a holy people, a godly people, set aside for your work, set aside for all that you want for us this year to do your will, Lord. Make us ready. We know you can by your spirit. Convict us, Lord, and show us your will. And we look to that day when you call us home. In Jesus' name. Amen.